You bet it is, and thank you so much for uh, for joining us on the show today. John Scholes here hosting, and my co-host beside me in the chair, well, figuratively anyway, Stan Fanselberg, courtesy Sam Firu to Mark and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Stan will be doing all the heavy lifting on the show today, as always, because I'm not the lawyer. He's got the brains, and uh, we'll figure it all out. If you have questions anywhere surrounding your employment law life, maybe it's a harassment at work thing, maybe you're still languishing under some sort of vaccine business, I don't know. Maybe you've been let go. Maybe you've been told you have to resign unless you work for Twitter. No, we'll cover that. Anyway, uh, could be uh, several things going on, but uh, we'll cover it all. By the way, we're going to get through the email box today. we got a ton piling up, so we'll work our way through those. That is simply help at employmentlawyer.ca. And get busy with us. Before we get to the email stand, like I said, we got a, a, a few headlines and a few things to go over that are uh, employment law related for sure. Um, first one, talk about recent decisions with mitigation, pal. What do you, uh, what do you got going on there? Yeah, good morning, John, and good morning, Toronto. A lot of employment news happening in the last uh, couple of weeks, and we, uh, we're going to cover it all. So as you mentioned, uh, right off the top of the, the show, I wanted to talk about a recent, actually, Court of Appeal decision that I think is very important for our listeners to know and about this concept of mitigation. You know, our listeners, I'm sure... Uh, who listen to the show frequently know what mitigation is. It's the concept that you have to, as a terminated employee, try to go out and find a comparable job. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the company will go to court and offer you uh, and argue, you didn't do enough, or you should have looked over there, you should have looked over here. And in this particular case, the trial judge actually agreed with them. Basically, the trial judge found that the individual... Um, was looking for jobs that were partially, you know, maybe a step up from where they were before uh, and failed to look specifically for jobs that were a step down from where they were. This individual was a general manager and uh, they were looking for certain VP jobs. uh, And the court actually reduced that individual's damages and notice period by two months saying you didn't do enough. You should look for a job that was lesser than the one you had. And the Ontario Court of Appeal actually reversed that decision. And, and it basically said a couple of things about that. Number one, it said that there is no obligation for an individual to look for a lesser form of employment than the one that they had. Again, the concept of mitigation itself is about comparable employment. Right. And the Ontario Court of Appeal said the judge just got that wrong. Uh, the other thing that the Court of Appeal said was that applying for a job above you is not, there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, firstly, it basically said that looking at titles is a terrible way to kind of judge whether a job is comparable or not. Because, John, I can tell you, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who are VP of sales who are really VP of nothing. They're just <laughs> sales guys. And, but, but in that type of role, you often get these very inflated titles because it's a customer-facing role, and people want to feel like they're dealing with the head honcho. Uh, and the last thing the judge then, this is the one aspect of mitigation that's so vital and so misinterpreted both by court and, you know, my friends on the other side of the aisle uh, for companies. And basically the trial judge in this instance said, well, you, you know, there were other jobs available and I don't have them in front of me because, but I know that you were only looking for these VP jobs and I assume that there must also be junior jobs available mm-hmm. And because you employee didn't look for those junior jobs, that's a faux pas. I'm going to reduce your, your damages. And again, the Ontario Court of Appeal reversed that because, frankly, that's the exact wrong 
interpretation of how the concept of mitigation works. Wow. What the Court of Appeal, again, re, uh, reinforced is that it's on the defendant, it's on the company to make that assertion, to make that claim with actual evidence. It's one thing to say, hey, this guy could have gone and found another job. It's another thing to go to court and say, hey, these are all the jobs that he was uh, that we found as a company and sent to the employee and told him to apply to these jobs during the relevant time. And they didn't do it. So for all those reasons, the Court of Appeal reversed that decision and found that despite all of the issues that we talked about, you know, that, that individual's mitigation efforts were completely fine. And basically, this five-and-a-half-year GM ended up with eight months of notice. Win for the small guy, man. It's about time that, uh, you know, once in a while you get a, a feel-good story and a good news story for sure. How about this one? The uh, the TTC eventually, I think, uh, in a couple of weeks or a week or two, if not a matter of days, suspending the vaccine mandate and recalling people they let go. What's what's the how's, – how's that working? Yeah, absolutely, you know, fascinating from my perspective, John, because unlike many of these other companies, the TTC didn't put these people on unpaid leave. They fired them for cause, right? So – Cause being the idea that they did something so egregious by not taking uh, the vaccine and by refusing to comply with the mandate that the relationship was irreparable. And here, we're, here we are a year later, and the TTC is basically saying, well, it's not irreparable. Yeah. We're, we're going to rescind this policy and we're going to ask you guys all to come back to work. So how can it possibly justify their initial position that the relationship couldn't possibly continue when a year later you're asking the relationship to continue uh you know just a bizarre legal strategy i would say from my perspective uh, i think it strongly undermines their original position that they had caused and you know i think we'll uh, at least at the firm start to see those cases settle a little bit quicker now, those, as far as we're not sure who and what departments and how many people are involved in that, but of course, it'll be the non-union stuff that you guys can mess with, right? Absolutely. As, uh, as our listeners know very well, if you're a unionized employee, unfortunately, you are barred from using the court system. Only the, court, only the union can help you against your employer through the grievance system, the collective uh, uh, bargaining agreement. Um, so anyone, but you know, this discussion specifically is related to management or people who are outside of, yeah. uh, union. Yeah. The, um, the last one I want to talk about before we start getting to phone calls and emails, big news story. It's, it's not so much a Toronto or Canadian thing. Well, it could be, I guess, but overall is Elon Musk basically saying, all right, whoever's still working here, work harder or you resign. That doesn't fly over here. I'm not sure when it's, you know, employment at will in the States, completely different set of circumstances, not nearly as robust as, you know, people working up in Canada, Ontario, to put a finer point on it. But how would that play out here if that was the case? And for those who are maybe working for Twitter on Canadian soil, if they're part of that uh, part of that announcement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly that's a very important distinction that you highlighted, John, the difference between American law and Canadian law and the fact that most states in the United States are just at will employment, meaning they don't got to give you notice. They can just say, hey, you're not coming in tomorrow, and that's it. That's all they owe you. In Ontario, you know, we do things a little bit differently, as you know, um, and certainly something like that would never fly. And, and even just giving an individual the ultimatum, I would say, is itself a constructive dismissal. You know, it's presuming any number of things, like presuming that that person wasn't working hard to begin with. Uh, so, so, I mean, to the extent that that ultimatum was given to individuals, 
in uh, in Canada. And I think it was slightly different, John, as I'm recalling. It was more like either take this severance package and resign or start showing up for Twitter 2.0, as Elon likes to call it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coming into the office, we're getting rid of remote working, standard 50-hour week as a minimum, all of this, you know, all of these ideas that I think he, he possesses that makes him presume that employees are going to be working harder and that it will fix Twitter. Um, and as, I, as I'm sure many of us have read, a lot of people did not choose that option. They prefer, you know, they prefer their remote working these days. Um, and they prefer working 40 hours and a little bit of work-life balance. We're, you know, we're not all Elon Musk uh, sleeping on the floor of a Tesla factory. Yeah, so many yeah. chose that, uh, that resignation severance offer. And, you know, technically speaking, nothing wrong with that in Ontario. You can certainly come to an employee and say, hey, you know, if you're interested in leaving, we'll pay you out. And that's, that's basically an agreement. That's, in, in legal terms, we often call that a voluntary termination because it's a, or a mutual termination where both sides are kind of coming together and, and agreeing that the relationship should end. And that's, now to keep in mind, that doesn't change what you're entitled to as an employee. Right. You know, even if it is a voluntary termination, if you're a 24 year guy, you know, you're still getting 18 to 24 months. And if they're not offering you that, you don't have to accept what they're offering. You could say, I choose neither of these options. I'm going to go hire Stan Fanselberg and he'll do better for me. <laughs> and with that, well, let's get into a break. We're going to get right back here with lots more of the Employment Law Show. Stand by. All right, we are back at it. Stan Fanselberg is your guy today on the show. Reaching out to Stan, by the way, when the show is over for uh, a lengthier conversation, ask your questions. You could do so. Email first, help at employmentlawyer.ca, and then 1-855-821-5900. But here, we got uh, John on the line. Hey, John, thanks for standing by, fella. How are you? Yeah, thank you. How are you? Good, sir. What's uh, what's on your mind? Uh, if I have a quick question, uh, if an employer... Uh, would you, and they don't compensate you, what is the proper way to do this? You're a little crusty, John. Where are you, uh, you're in a tunnel or something? Because you're breaking up. Try again. Sorry about that. Is that better? Yeah, that's a little better. Try again. Yeah, okay. so, so what I wanted to know was if uh, a headhunter is looking to recruit you, Mm. And you're with, with a company within five to ten years, and you end up leaving them because you have to give them that two-week notice. Or is the new company acquiring that length of time that you're with the current, or does your work start from Fantastic question. zero? Yep. Yeah, question. great question, John. And I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Thanks, man. Yeah, that's a great question. And there is a concept in employment law called inducement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the one thing to remember is that it's not that they automatically, you know, recognize your service with the other company. It very much depends on the facts of what happened. So one of those factors, as John kind of alluded to, is recruitment. You know, if they're recruiting you, if they're, they're coming to you, uh, you're perfectly happy where you are. And they're saying, hey, we want you and we're making and making you all these promises of long term employment. That's the basic concept of inducement. The other thing to keep in mind with that is the contract becomes really important because one particular aspect, the probationary clause, there is some case law that suggests that if you have a probationary clause in the contract, it is antithetical to the idea of inducement. 
you know, you, they can't have, the idea is essentially the new employer couldn't have possibly intended to recognize your service with the previous company or couldn't have intended to have made you these promises of long-term safe, secure employment when you have a clause in there that basically says, hey, we're valuing for the first three months, and if it doesn't work out, we're going to fire you and not owe you anything. So you really have to make sure that you're negotiating with the new employer. Maybe they won't come outright come out and say, yeah, we'll, we'll count those years with the previous company. But if you negotiate a co uh, contract that makes it look like that's the intention, if they're like, you know, if they're paying you a signing bonus to come over, you know, if they're taking out things like a probationary clause, if they're giving you other perks like higher vacation than a new hire, or maybe waiving any sort of eligibility period for group benefits or for their pension. Those are all strong indicators to suggest that they're actually inducing that person to come over from a legal perspective, and a court will consider the previous years with the previous company as well. Now, the only, the one, I guess the one way they can do that, the new company, if they contract you out, we will not recognize previous, uh, previous service, blah, 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 which I, I personally, if you're a long service employee with the previous job where you're coming from, I would never sign that, but that's an option an employer has, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, an employer is allowed to set the terms of the employment relationship, right? They're the ones who have the job. Yeah. They're the ones who are saying, this is the job. Do you want it on these terms? And the employee's free to say no, especially an employee who works somewhere else. So absolutely, you have to make sure you're reading that contract, seeing what's in it, uh, and using the leverage that you have to negotiate the terms that you want. Yeah, they came to get you, so uh, you could probably play a little hardball with them. By the way, you want to say if you if, if that ever comes about, and you want uh, Stan to have a look at that contract or any other uh, documentation from a current or soon to be employer, you can send it over help at employmentlawyer.ca, and Stan can uh, can take a look at it. Mario, you've been very patient, hanging on. Hope you've uh, learned something so far, pal. How are you? Pretty good, thanks. Beauty, what's up? So uh, I've just been uh, recently let go to my employer. Um, I was employed there uh, just under 11 years. January would have been my uh, 11th anniversary. And uh, uh, I'm 63 years old. Uh, I'm a professional IT. I'm just wondering what I should expect for a severance package. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, firstly, I'm really sorry to hear about the loss of your employment, Mario. Hello? Um, yep. You got us here? Yep. Uh, okay. In terms of... Uh, what you guys can expect for that. I know, you know, I would say an 11 year so guy. Question, right? What's that? <laughs> so you heard what I mentioned, right? What yeah, we heard. Yeah. An 11 year guy, 63 years old, work as an IT professional. You know, in those circumstances, I would expect something in the range Hello? of 11 to 14 months. 11 to 14 months, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are the chances? Thanks, Mary. I appreciate that. I think he had trouble hearing us, but I've, uh, I, 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 I got, I, I hung up on him. So hopefully he can hear us on the air instead. Right. So 11 yeah. to 14 months. I mean, that would all, that would also include, depending on Mario's job, all components of his compensation, whether he had a car allowance, bonuses, uh, commissions, all that stuff. It's all got to be wrapped in there, not just the pay. Right. Absolutely. That is the yeah. starting presumption. The presumption that you start from is you get everything. And then you start looking at things like a bonus plan, for example, which could actually have some language, which disentitles you from your bonus during the notice period. 
that is legal, and you know, there's certainly a lot of case law that suggests that. But it's not that easy either. You know, um, often you'll see bonus plans have language that say, "Well, you got to be actively employed on the date that the bonus is paid," and that date is usually three to four months after the year has ended. So you could be working the whole year. January, all of a sudden, the company says, hey, this guy's about to get, you know, $50,000 bonus. We could save that. All we got to do is let him go. And, yeah. you know, they, they think, hey, well, we have this clause that says you got to be actively employed, and you're not actively employed because we let you go. So that particular language has actually gone all the way to the Supreme Court, John, and the Supreme Court specifically said that's not good enough. And the reason being, essentially, that actively employed is, a, is basically – within the discretion of the employer. The employer can choose to give you working notice or they can choose not to. And even when they choose not to give you working notice, the court essentially says, well, you're still an employee. You're a nominal employee. And just because you can't, because they barred you from being an active employee, that shouldn't disentitle you from that bonus. So really important to look at the terms in these ancillary documents, things like bonus plans, you know, restricted stock unit plans, what have you. Make sure you have those evaluated to see exactly what it says and what you get into. Specifically, I would say with stock option plans, because those tend to have a vesting period. You know, they usually come to you and say, hey, we're going to give you 5,000 stock, um, but you are not eligible to actually get it. In, uh, you know, they only vest 25% every four years, every, sorry, year, over a four-year period. And so oftentimes companies figure, hey, you know, we could save a little bit of money, maybe get rid of this guy, keep all that stock. Maybe the stock is just absolutely shot up since that person was hired. And they will try to take that stock away from you if they can. So make sure you have those types of plans evaluated. And as far as the uh, the amounts are concerned, I know we always uh, direct people, well, there's always the phone call to you, of course, but then you always have the handy-dandy tool of pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. That thing is a beauty because it's free, it's anonymous, and rolled into that is the severance calculator, which will give you a pretty darn accurate uh, number, Mario, of what your severance should be. Again, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca is how you uh, how you access that one. Let's get to our uh, first email of the day. Stan comes from uh, Kelsey. He says, hey, guys, I've worked through uh, two separate employment agencies for the same company for over 20 years. They laid me off during the pandemic. And then in January, the employment agency terminated me. Is there anything I can do? Sorry, you caught up there, John. Can you repeat that one? I- yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You got some phone issues today. Says uh, Kelsey yeah. uh, says, I've worked through two separate employment agencies, uh, same company, 20 years. They laid me off during the pandemic. And then in January, this past January, the employment agency terminated me. Is there anything I can do? Well. Yeah, uh, it absolutely. You know, you have to, again, this is where the facts of the situation becomes so important, John. You know, in this scenario, ostensibly, Kelsey works for an employment agency, right? Only the employment agency is liable to her. Well, not so fast. I mean, if she works for a place for 20 years, for one single place, yeah. on, a, on a quote-unquote assignment as a temporary employee contractor... You know, I would very much argue that that person is not just employed by the employment agent. They're employed by the company that they were sent to actually work at. And the reason this becomes really important in a scenario like this, and, you know, I'm guessing that the second employment agency, they don't want to recognize the the first employment agency's service because you you weren't our employee at that time. You were 
ABC's employee. Yeah. But you know who's but you know who's employee you were also the place where you were working physically for twenty years. And so that's why in something like Kelsey's scenario, not only would I take action against the employment agency at the end of the relationship, I would take action at the place where she was working on assignments and actually say, hey, you are the employer, despite what, you know, what your papers say and despite what your position is on paper, you know, legally speaking, from an employer law perspective, we're going to say you're the employer as well. Kelsey, appreciate that uh, that email. If you want to reach out uh, anytime afterwards, it's always uh, an option for you. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. We'll get to Rajesh here quickly before we uh, kind of slide into a break. He says, "Guys, my employer is selling the business and tells me the buyer is going to hire me. However, it's been almost two months and I haven't heard anything from the buyer. Can I still go after my former employer?" Absolutely, absolutely, Rajesh. You know. Anytime you have a sale of business, well, I should be more specific. When you have an asset sale of business, meaning you're not selling the stock of the corporation, you're not actually taking over the corporate entity. You're just selling all of the, the assets, the furniture, the business list, what have you, the products. Whenever you have that type of scenario, legally speaking, that employee is being terminated by the seller. There's no question because, again, the corporation is not coming over. So the corporation that employed that person, that relationship is ending. There's no question about that. Now, in many times, you will have some clauses in there that say, well, the buyer has to recognize the employee's service with the seller. Uh, and the sell- sellers actually often negotiate that on behalf of their employees because you know it's good for their employees and it's also good for the seller because then they know they're on- it's very unlikely they're going to get sued. Um, but in something like Rajesh's situation, I mean, a promise, a promise to make a pro- something happen is not the same thing as a contract. And that's essentially what I think we have going on here. You know, somebody made him a promise with no legally binding weight. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's going to materialize. And that doesn't stop you from going back to that seller and saying, hey, I never got that job off from, from the buyer. So, you know, you owe me some severance and, and you got to pay up. Rajesh, really appreciate that email. Again, you can reach out to Stand by Phone for a lengthier conversation anytime, 1-855-821-5900. We'll get to Danny. Your email is up next, pal. I've got a whole bunch more coming in. We'll take a short break. Before that, you want to send one in, help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll continue. Lots more Employment Law Show is coming right up. You betcha. We're back. Stan Fainselberg, Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP is taking all the uh, the calls and emails uh, on the show today and answering your questions. Emails are help at employmentlawyer.ca. You've also got the option of pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Lots of information. There, of course, is contact info there as well, and you'll have free and anonymous access to the severance calculator, which is uh, super handy. Over 2 million people in this country have used it since uh, Lior put that together some years ago. And then, of course, there's uh, reach out afterwards and have a uh, your own private conversation with Stan and his team, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. But we're going to move on to a uh, another email here. Stan, let's get uh, Danny. I'll pull Danny out of the pile. It says, guys, I refused to get the vaccine for religious reasons, but my employer would not budge and terminated me without anything. Is this discrimination and wrongful dismissal? Yeah, a really difficult question that's certainly, you know, making its way through uh, the court system right now. And I'm going to break it down into both basically the two components that he mentions, because there's the discrimination, there's the wrongful dismissal aspect. So starting with the wrongful dismissal aspect, 
to fire someone for cause, you know, in Ontario, we have this secondary higher standard that basically says if you want to not even pay them their minimums under the ESA, not only do you have to have cause, that person has, you have to have what's called willful misconduct. Essentially, that you have to be able to prove that they were being bad on purpose, is how the court have, uh, have essentially described it. And in a context like this, I don't think it's possible to prove that somebody like Danny was being bad on purpose. You know, you could say he chose, he was willful in choosing not to uh, adhere to the policy and get the vaccine. But at the same time, you know, if he's got sincerely held religious beliefs, how could that be willful? If somebody's saying, well, these are my belief systems, I can't go against what my, my God is telling me. That, that certainly makes it a lot less voluntary. And in my view, I don't think that they could ever raise to the level of willful misconduct. In terms of the discrimination, that's a really difficult question because you have to really look into, well, what are the, the religious beliefs that Danny is relying on? Um, what has his particular religion said about the vaccine? What have the spiritual leaders said about the vaccine? The, and, you know, a, a lot of religions have essentially come out and said, yeah, no, this is fine, and we're not going to say that there's a religious issue with it. Um, and that's going to make it, I think, a little bit difficult to prove that discriminatory aspect. Not impossible, because at the end of the day, religion, you know, a religious discrimination is about that individual, and that individual's sincerely held beliefs. And, you know, even if the Pope thinks it's okay, that may not mean that Danny thinks it's okay based on his interpretation of his religion. So, and in fact, there's actually been one case I'm aware of, John, where a nurse made that, alle made that uh, allegation, assertion, took the position that, well, I can't get this vaccine because of my religion, and an arbitrator agreed with her. Said, yeah, you, you know, she very clearly believes this. There was, you know, it, it was found that she was very credible, that despite the fact that maybe her religion uh, and her the institution itself not having that as an official policy, that that individual believed what she, uh, what she was asserting and believed wholeheartedly that the vaccine was against that person's religious uh, obligation. And in that instance, it was found to be discrimination. So it's not impossible. It's just very difficult. We can keep rolling down our email list because we got a got a good sized pile. Claire, thank you so much for sending this in. Says my department is being outsourced to another company, and this new company wants to stay on, wants me to stay on as a contractor. Stan, is that legal? I would say there's nothing illegal about it, but it's you know I would also say that there's almost no chance in hell that Claire's an actual contractor. If you're yeah. if you're doing the same job that you did yesterday as an employee today as a contractor, you know, maybe for, you know, if they gave you a six month contract as that, you can get away with it. But if you're just going to continue working for 10 years in that same job, what makes that person a contractor, John? That's, yeah. It makes no sense. Right. Yeah. Still got you there, Stan. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There he is. Yeah, sorry. I was just yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, they're going to and plus there's uh, there's going to be issues when it comes to severance if that ever comes down the pike. Oh, now you're a contractor. Blah blah blah. Could be giving up on a lot of years. In fact, many years uh, if if Claire decides to say, oh yeah, okay, I'll be a contractor now, and it's illegal anyway. She's not a contractor. She's an employee. Absolutely. I mean, and the other fascinating aspect of this is the outsourcing, and you know, the previous years of service come into play, right? Yeah. Well, like, 
you know, are they recognizing it? With a contractor, unlike an employee, with an employee, you can actually, when you're selling a business or buying a business, sorry, buying a business, you can actually include a clause that specifically says we're not recognizing your previous years of service. They have to for the statutory purposes. There's no question about that. But for the common law purposes, you can include a clause that says, hey, this is the job. We're going to recognize it for ESA purposes, but not for common law. Do you want the job? The employee says, yes, that's the term. That's, that's a new employment relationship on those terms. In an, issue, in an instance like this, where they're basically bringing an employee over, outsourcing them to be a contractor, you can't even do that. Yeah. Because, because the relationship, the premise of the relationship is, a, is illegal. It, it, in the, in like, it's not a true characterization of what this relationship is. So even if you had, you know, and almost every contractor uh, contract says this, something like, you understand that you are an independent contractor and we're not hiring you as an employee and we're not recognizing any service and we owe nothing to you and we have no obligations to you as an employee. You know, that's frankly not worth the paper it's written on. Because you can write it down all day at the end and all the courts really care about is what are the facts, what is the true nature of the relationship. Yeah, and you'll get yourself in some hot water as an employer if you try that as well with ESA and all and all that business, and if you ever sever the relationship with severance, so on and so forth. So big red flag there. Yeah, yeah. I want to get to uh, Jason short and sweet before we take a break, and uh, this this might uh, surprise Jason. I, I don't think he's probably got too many shows, but he says is the general rule of thumb two weeks of severance for every year I worked. Mm, nope. No, absolutely not, Jason. I mean that's almost like a minimum. For some people, uh, in certain instances, you, you know, a person would be under their statutory entitlements, their minimum entitlements would be two weeks per year. There really is no rule of thumb. I know we all want to have a shortcut to get to what am I owed. And, you know, frankly, if you want a shortcut, we, we create a, an app for that, uh, the, the pay, uh, severance pay calculator. But, you know, this is where the, the kind of nuance of employment law takes hold and you it's not just the simplest thing well two weeks per year well we gotta look at what does jason do how old is he where are his job prospects are there any you know any unusual factors that may take that number up or down such as maybe jason's got a medical disability that's going to make it especially difficult for him to find that next job that's something that the courts will say hey we gotta give this guy a little bit more money or you know if an individual is pregnant and he, they get let go very unlikely that they're going to be able to find a job, unfortunately, yeah. uh, before they give birth. And, you know, we all want to think that discrimination like that doesn't happen, but it's kind of hard to hide a pregnancy. And you don't have to be very overt in saying, hey, we're not going to hire this person because they're pregnant because you, kind of, you can kind of see it. So that's another factor where courts have said, yeah, we're going to give this person more notice and more money to account for that. And with that, guys, we'll take one more short break before we dive back into some more emails. In the meantime, send one along, help at employmentlawyer.ca. And the website, of course, always pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Stand by. Lots more Employment Law Show is on the way. Ready? welcome back. Thanks so much for hanging in here. Employment Law Show, John Scholes, Stan Fainselberg, Sam Firu, Tamarkin. LLP is where you reach out to stand anytime. Don't uh, let the misinformation or anything else just linger out there in the ether. Get 
the right information, get the right advice moving forward with anything having to do with your work life, whether it's a temporary layoff or a vaccine issue, probably, or just, you know, you've been let go, you got a severance question, harassment, you know, all that stuff. Uh, 1-855-821-5900 is how you do that. When we're not doing this show, help at employmentlawyer.ca. And by the way, if you just go to employmentlawyer.ca, the firm website, it'll take you there under the Knowledge Center, the tab that says Media. You'll catch past radio shows and link to our long-running TV show as well, so you can go and review some of those uh, at your leisure. But any other time, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Want to get down to Albert? Next uh, next email says, "Hey Stan, can an employer terminate uh, terminate you rather while you were on a disability leave?" Yeah, you know a lot of uh, people I speak to are a little bit surprised to know this or learn this, but an employer actually can terminate you while you're on a disability leave. The important distinction to remember is that they a, can't terminate you in any facet, even if it's 1% of the decision-making process, because you're on a disability leave. Right. And <clears throat> beyond that, if they are say, eliminating your position legitimately, they're letting go 100 people, and you know your position just happens to fall within that 100, they haven't another obligation to you to look beyond that to say, okay, well, is there any other job here that you can do? Because if we can't give you your job, legally speaking, they still have to try to give you a comparable job. And if there isn't, and if that is factually, actually true, then yes, they can terminate you and pay you out your severance. So if it's, for instance, like you say, a matter of the entire department's being let go and you just happen to be part of that department, they're not singling you out. It's a, it's kind of a mass firing, I guess, but it, you're part of that, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's where, yeah. you know, I think the distinction that becomes really important is that it cannot, the termination cannot be in any way tainted by mm. the fact or the, the perception that you're disabled. That's why, you know, even if it's 1% of the decision-making process, maybe it was down to... You know, employee A and employee B, and they're deciding between the two, and they're like, ah, employee A, you know, he's got that disability that's kind of a pain in the ass for us. Um, why don't we just get rid of that person? Wow, imagine. You know, yeah, I mean, you, you know, I, I doubt anyone's, <laughs> anyone's uh, that ignorant to say those things out loud these days, but does it cross people's minds? I don't doubt it for a second. And if you can, you can prove that, even if, you know, circumstantially you can prove that, that is discrimination, despite the fact that, you know, you were just one of a hundred. You were still discriminated in that particular instance. Robert, you're a good man. Thanks for writing in on the show today. He says, guys, I was terminated after 12 years of service. I was a, uh, it was a technical role. I'm in my 40s. I was offered 25 weeks severance. Is that fair? Is that close? Uh, it, it's not the worst, you know, offer that we've seen, but it, it definitely doesn't sound fair. I mean, depending on Robert's employer, if they have a payroll of over $2.5 million, then the least amount of money that employer could ever give him is 20 weeks. And when you consider that, you know, they're really only giving him five additional weeks in that scenario. And that's not very good, frankly. So Robert, I mean, first of all, go check it out, the, the app, the Severance Pay Calculator, See what that uh, gives you in terms of numbers, and then give us a call, and we'll see what we can do for you. 
Again, uh, Robert, it's pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. You'll see the severance calculator rolled into that particular uh, app or web page. You can use that anytime. It's free and anonymous. And, yeah, I mean, a, a 25-week severance, I mean, that doesn't even close to the common law uh, what it should be. The, terminate, the severance calculator will, of course, tell him more. But sounds a little bit shy, Stan. Sounds a little bit weak. Yeah, as I said, I mean, in certain scenarios, it may only just be five weeks that they're giving you because the 20 you're already guaranteed and not to get into the rule of thumb uh terminology but for a guy like robert i would say a month per year is probably the starting point yeah yeah again severance calculator puts a finer point on it for sure bob big bob right in says guys my employer gave me a month of working notice i have an interview in halliburton and she denied my request for time off for that interview is that allowed i see what he's saying okay yeah yeah, I would say that's not allowed because it undermines the exact purpose of the working notice. You know, the working notice is to give you time um, to actually go and try to replace your job. And oftentimes we talk about money in this context, right? It's not most most employers don't want employees sticking around after they've been fired for yes. obvious reasons. They can cause harm. They're demotivated, etc. Uh, and so instead of that, they you know instead of giving you the time to find the job, they just pay you the money. That's equivalent to the time. But it's also true that you can an employer can absolutely has the right to give you working notice. And in those scenarios, the employees got to stick around and work out the notice. But in a situation like this, where you you know the employer is specifically denying you the right to go and try to find that next job. What I would argue is that that's not working notice at that point. You know, you can't have it both ways. You can't both eat away at somebody's entitlements by having them work for you and not give them the opportunity to try to go and find a new job and move on. How about this angle, too? I mean, Bob hasn't, uh, he, di- he didn't give any more detail than what I just read on air, but uh, we don't know his age. We don't know the job. We don't know how long he's been there. I'm, I think you get pretty certain that a month of working notice is not even going to be close to what he was owed. So there should be some severance offerings after that as well, no? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, I can't even think of an employee who would only get a month. I mean, maybe if you were there for, um, um, a couple of days or a couple of weeks and you're in your 30s, then you might be worth yeah. something as low as a month. But really, the starting point is about two to three in most scenarios. And, you know, one other point to keep in mind, John, uh, is that, you know, we use a lot of these terms interchangeably, like notice, severance, termination pay, but sometimes they mean very specific things. And let's say in this scenario, he got 24 months of working notice. You know, in the, under the common law, we'd say, well, 24 months, that's the most really anyone can kind of get. You know, he got everything he was owed. But that's not necessarily true because under the statute, again, assuming he has a payroll of over $2.5 million, he's been there for five years, he's also entitled to severance pay at the end of the notice period. And severance pay, you cannot give severance pay as working notice. You have to actually pay it. So Bob can get 24 months of working notice. And let's say he was there for 26 years, he's going to get another 26 weeks of actual severance pay at the end of that period. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Even with that uh, lengthy uh, notice, which, I mean, 24 months of notice would be absolutely crazy for most employees for all the reasons you said, you know, bad blood and, you know, re- you know they're going to reduce their, their actually efforts at work. I mean, it's just, it would not be a cool thing to do, but it's interesting to realize that even if the scenario were that much notice, they'd still have to cough up a few, a uh, few shekels at the end of it for, uh, for severance pay. It's, uh, it's an interesting angle for sure. But again, that's why you always make that phone call to Stan and, uh, and figure this out. Let's get to one more before we wrap for the day. It's, uh, James. Guys, I've been off work for a week with a cold. I told my employer yesterday that I feel good enough to return to work next week, and they told me that I would have to get a COVID test showing I was negative, or they could not let me come back to work. Do I have to go for that COVID test? You know, this is, I would say this is a moving goalpost over the last two years. Because if you asked me this question two years ago or even a year ago, I'd say, yeah, you got to go get that COVID test. Yeah. We're in a state of emergency. The reality is we're no longer in a state of emergency, at least not, you know, a declared emergency by the province. So I think it's a little bit more, I would argue you probably don't have to get the COVID test just because your employer said, especially because you've been off, you know, and so to the extent that you might've had COVID, well, it's only an isolation period these days, I think of about five days. And if you were off for a week, had you even had COVID, you know, you're past the isolation period. So what's gotcha. the purpose of the test at that point? And with that, we are going to wrap for another day. If you want to reach out to Stan now that we're done, do not hesitate. Always good for a chat. It'll be a no obligation, no charge. It's to pick up a phone, right? one 821 5900 is how you do that. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. That's the email address we always go to on the show. And then finally, that website. Keep it with you, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. And we'll catch you next time on the Employment Law Show.